So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Philippians 2. There might be a lot of sniffling going on this morning, <clears throat> not because I'm emotional, but because I'm sick. So I've asked Joey to cut down the microphone so you don't really have to hear it through the speakers, you know. So um, but we'll get through this together. So Philippians chapter 2, I won't, I won't catch you up to speed, but I will say something that's kind of been very interesting about this is I was looking over this thinking, all right, so what's next in the text as we're going verse by verse, and I kind of glossed over Philippians 2, 19 through, well, the rest of Philippians 2, 19 through 30, and thought, ah, you know, Paul's just saying that he's going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus, so there's really not much to teach there. And I was going to move right into Philippians 3, and then I kind of got stopped in my tracks looking at the character and the quality of a man that Paul would deem worthy enough that Paul would choose to, to send out. Uh, not, not just that, but a man that Paul, on his deathbed, well, not really, a, I guess, in a, in a manner of speaking, he knew that his life was coming to an end. He writes at the end of his second letter to Timothy, he says, look, I know that I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. I know that the end is very near, you know, and what I really desire is I desire your company. So he writes to Timothy saying, he gives him instructions both to Timothy and to Titus. That's what we call those, the, the pastoral epistles. They're letters, but they're coaching. They're instructions for local church. Uh, so a lot of pastors need to become very well acquainted with First and Second Timothy and Titus because it's just, it's gold as far as what it is to be a pastor. And that's not the only places that Scripture really helps to shape what a pastor looks like in character and conduct, but those are very intentional about doing that. So I kind of got stopped because I'm like, why would, why would, what is so special about Timothy that Paul would say, hey, I want, you're going to be the man and you're going to be the man that, that I really want to spend some time with before I, before I go to meet my maker. So there's something special. There's a quality about Timothy. He was the go-to man. I don't know if you've ever been the go-to man in your profession. Maybe you have a certain level of expertise in something. I don't know if Dennis is the go-to man for frying chicken. I don't understand. I don't know who is the man for those things. Right? I, very rarely am I called upon in my life to be the man for a certain job. No one calls me and says, hey, you know, we really need you to lift something really heavy on the job site. We'll call Birchfield. You know, I'm not the man for that. I'm not the man that they call on for, for, for trim. That's Austin because he's the trim gypsy. That's what we call him or what I call him. You know, it's, 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 not, you know, it's not my field, so I'm waiting. You know, what, what can I be? You know, oh, I get it. I'm the encourager. That's what they say at the job is... I'm the encourager. If you don't know that story, it's a brief one and a very funny one. We were at a Christmas, we were at a Christmas get together with a company, and our boss goes around the whole table, basically complimenting all the gifts and the strengths that all the guys bring to the company as carpenters. He gets to me and with a twinkle in his eye and a and a smile on his face, he says, "Alan, you're you're a good encourager." I'm like, what is that? <laughs> you jerk! You know, I was I was not offended, but. Kind of was, you know, uh, and I, I, granted, I know I'm not the cat's pajamas when it comes to carpentry, but lie, say something, right? You know, answer to God for, for my, you know, for, for making me feel better or something. So I, I struggled with that and I began to think, am I ever the go-to guy? You know, and it's not very often that I'm the guy that people call and say, well, I need you for this. I need you for that. You know, uh, maybe, maybe that's you, you know, Evan is often the guy that I call, Hey, what's with some good eateries in, uh, I'm sorry if that's what you want to be known for. I'm sorry, you know. You know, what are some good places to eat, you know, in South Carolina or in, in Greenville? Because 
My wife and I, when we get a little bit of money, we like to go and ex- experience some nice, nice food places. So I call Evan, you know, uh, you know, at, uh, for Austin is, is my guy for word pictures. You know, I don't use a whole lot of word pictures, but if you ever hear a good one, he probably told it to me, right? Because he thinks that way. He thinks in, in, in visuals and ways that help communicate truth better than I can. And so, you know, I'm not often the go-to guy. And I'll tell you, Timothy was a least likely candidate for being a go-to guy. He had his own struggles. He had his own issues. But interestingly enough, this is what Paul has to say. He writes in verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, speaking to this church in Philippi, which by the way, Timothy helped plant a lot of these churches with Paul. He says, I hope to send him to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He says, for all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a, with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul saw something special in Timothy. At that moment, Timothy was Paul's go-to man. And I don't think it's by happenstance that we see this. I come across passages like this, and I, I believe that all of God's Word is inspired. I believe it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. I believe it. But if I'm honest with you, sometimes I come to places like the book of Numbers, and I'm like, what? What? how do you preach that? How does that apply to me? You know, he begat this, he begot this. Lord, how in the world... Do I make heads or tails of this? You know, how, do, how does this profit me? You know, I believe it, but I don't see it. One day, maybe I will, but I don't see it a lot of the times. And so I came across this, and I think the Lord started to show me this is where this is profitable for you, and this is where this section will be profitable for the church that I've given you stewardship of and that I've given Austin stewardship of, which is no light manner or, and is very much a daunting task in a, in a good way. And this is what he has to say about Timothy. First of all, he says this. I'm going to divide it up based on the statements that he has made and then give you a little bit of a character assessment of, of Timothy because it's interesting. We, we're studying the life of Paul. We're talking about the, the, the riches of joy found in the fullness of Christ. And then all of a sudden, Paul's like, but let me, let me promote Timothy right here. Let me just boast in Timothy and let me, let me show you what kind of man this is and, and why he's a good candidate for not only me sending him out, but for also wanting him later to be with me, you know, my final hours, my final days. There's just something special about Timothy. Paul says there's no one like him. There's no one. Now, I've had that said of me before, but in the negative way. There's no one like him, I'll tell you that. With, with Timothy, it was a positive connotation. He said, there's no one like him. Now, let me give some clarity Paul obviously had friends in some of in, in the disciples, the apostles, and others. He's not saying that, oh, well, Timothy's just way better than these other guys that are living and dying for the gospel. He's not saying that. It's a statement that he's making to show a quality and a caliber that Timothy has that is unlike most, but not all. So understand when he's saying it's not this absolute statement. It's not to be taken so black and white to say that Timothy just far transcends way out beyond, beyond all the other apostles, all the, all the apostles. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying there's something special about Timothy. There's something unique, and there's a reason that I'm putting my finger on him and a reason that I'm using him. There was a genuineness. There was a legitimacy to Timothy. He had a reputation 
Paul saw something in Timothy that set him apart from everyone else or definitely made him distinct. And so I think some of that is found when you start to explore the text in relationship to who Timothy was. So a little bit about his character. You know, Timothy was a a man of genuine faith, is what the Bible says. Listen to 2 Timothy as Paul writes to him. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. He says, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears. So Paul's recalling moments that are spent with Timothy. They They went through the crucible of affliction together, by the way. They're going and they're planting these churches, and Timothy was privied to some pretty pretty real stuff. I mean, who, who's going to travel with Paul and not go through some junk, right? Who's going to spend that kind of time, years, with Paul and not see the, 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 the ugly side of life and see the brokenness and the fallenness and the destitute nature of the world that we live in? So Timothy is, has been brought through the crucible of fire, the crucible of affliction, and Paul's remembering these things. And he says, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, is what he says. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. There's a uniqueness to the faith that Timmy had, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, is what Paul says, and in your mother, or sorry, in your yeah, grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So Timothy's mother and grandmother had a good reputation for being godly women, the godly, the type of godly women that Titus references when he says, you older women need to take younger women and you need to teach them to love their husbands and teach them what it is to be a godly mother, you know, and, and I'm quite certain she didn't, you know, just go to Proverbs 31 and just do that. These women didn't just say, hey, follow, follow these examples. These women modeled what it was to be like Christ you know, because it's thought that Timothy's dad was kind of out of the picture. Maybe he was estranged, wasn't very godly, a uh, very godly man. That's, that's assumed. I don't know that for sure. I'm not saying the Bible says that because it doesn't, but it, there's no mention of him and his influence in Timothy's life. But what is mentioned is Lois and Eunice, his mother and his grandmother. And so it says that he had a genuine faith. So Paul is referencing the sincerity in Timothy's faith. And then he's, and then he's, he's obviously making note that he's recognized because of the way that he's brought up. So his character is, a, is that of genuine faith. He was trustworthy. If he's not trustworthy, why was Paul going to, on occasion, send Timothy out to minister to these churches that they planted together or that Paul planted? He trusted Timothy. Hey, I can't go, and I understand that. It's hard to delegate, especially something like that. If, if me or Austin were to leave for whatever reason and... and there was something going on at Haven Ridge, and there was kind of this emergency situation, this, this theological emergency, this spiritual emergency, and we couldn't be there. You better believe it's going to be a, a, a rigorous application process to find the right person to go and to minister. If, I, if, if, you know, if we're out talking at an abortion clinic and we get arrested, okay, if we get arrested and then we're without or you're without a pastor, somebody's got to step up. Somebody's got to be something. And so it can't just be Joe Schmo or some schmuck off the street. It has to be someone that we can trust, someone that we know will, will, will do the job well, someone that is kind of a first or a front runner in our mind. And this is the kind of guy that Timothy was, to Paul especially. Timothy was not just a man of good character, but he had a lot of struggles. He had his own struggles. He struggled for credibility or with credibility. I don't know if you can identify with that, but you maybe have an expertise or you're trying to gain an expertise. Young pastors go through this all the time. 
you know, and older people look at you like, oh, you're, you're training to be a pastor or one day you'll get there, you know, so it's, 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 it's a tough situation or you start a new job, you know, and you're trying to learn and you're trying to develop some credibility as a hard worker, as someone who really pays attention. And maybe others are doubting you because, hey, I'm new on the job. And maybe, and maybe that makes sense. There should be some kind of, okay, you're, you're young and let's recognize that you're inexperienced. So let's develop that. But we understand what it's like to try to earn credibility. You know, Nathan goes around and he, you know, he, he wires people's houses up and he wants people to consider him a good electrician. You know, if he blows up a few houses, that might ruin that. But, but, but Nathan is earning some credibility as an electrician. You know, and, and you, you, can, you can create the scenario that best fits where you are, but you've all been there. You know, stirring beakers, whatever it is that you do. You know, you want to be taken seriously. You want to have credibility. You blow up the lab, and you might not have any credibility, Charlie. So, But he struggled for credibility because 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says, listen, let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, and purity. So Paul's saying, don't worry about your abilities. Don't worry about your stature. Don't worry about your eloquence. Don't worry about all these things that the world says, this is what makes you someone of credibility. This is what makes you someone that we can trust. He says, don't worry about those things, especially in the context of what you're doing. He said, let your conduct as a follower of Jesus, let your sincerity of faith live out to such a degree that people have no choice but to say, this guy's the real deal. This guy is the real deal. You know, I've, I've, I've served at a church where you know, they had a certain criteria for what they wanted in a pastor. And among that list of criteria or criterion was a certain age. Now, many churches have a certain age criterion, a certain degree criterion, certain experience criterion. And I get all that. I get all that. And each church, be it autonomous, makes their choices. They can choose what they want. But we have to be careful of creating all these extra biblical criterion you know, and saying, oh, you can't because of this, when the Bible doesn't put that prohibition or the Bible doesn't create those boundaries. But pastors go through it all the time. Maybe young seminarians, they want to get out and they just want to serve. Now, granted, they have the, the reputation of those who might want to charge hell with a water pistol. You ever heard that expression before? This is the idea that people are just so gung-ho. Maybe they don't have the wisdom that they need, and that happens. They don't have the wisdom because wisdom comes in one or two ways. It either comes through experience or it comes supernaturally like it did for Solomon, and God just grants it. I pray for that all the time, but I haven't felt some crazy supernatural gifting of wisdom. So I have to earn it. I have to go through trials. I have to go through hardship. I have to go through the crucible of affliction, and I learn from those mistakes. I learn from those mishaps. I learn from verbal blunders. I learn from all these things, and hopefully it creates further distance from me and making that mistake again. You know, but... but but oftentimes people like pastors, for example, are getting out of seminary and they're ready to go. They're like, I'll do whatever. I just want to win souls. I want to preach the word the best I can. And in some ways, that's the best thing you can get because a lot of people lose that, that fire and that zeal. And they become complacent. They become, I don't, cautious <coughs> is not a bad thing. But to a point, their caution and their immobility becomes recklessness because they're not willing to do what's necessary for the, for the advancement of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom. And Paul says, look, I know one of your struggles is establishing credibility with people because you're young. And scholars think he may have been mid-30s, you know. And so when I first read it, I thought, well, okay, maybe he was kind of the equivalent of a fresh seminarian. You know, maybe he was, you know, just 
entering manhood. Maybe he was 19, 20 or something, but maybe not. Either way, there were those who were viewing him as young. And that was, that was the standard of measure that they placed on him as to whether or not they would give him credibility or they would trust him. So he had to earn it. And Paul says, you earn it this way, in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. He had his struggles, but he wasn't just struggling to establish or gain, uh, gain credibility, but he also struggled with uh, sickness. He was known to be kind of sickly. He was known to have ailments. And so what does Paul write? He says, hey, have some wine. He doesn't say go get blistered. He doesn't say go get drunk. He says, have some wine. It'll help your stomach. He says, go do that. He had his own struggles. I don't know if you've ever known sickly people who just always seem to be battling something. They can't go here. They can't go there. They can't do that. They can't do this. They're just, they're just one step away from living in a bubble, right? And it's a hindrance to their life. I'm sure they're frustrated by that. You know, it's like, I can't go outside my room. I can't go outside because all the dead gum ragweed in South Carolina, you know, I just suffer everywhere I go. But the struggle is real. Timothy had, he had his struggles. He had these relationships. Listen to, you see his character in the relationships that he had. Paul had dear affections for Timothy. He requested Timothy's presence at the end of his letter. Timothy helped Paul plant churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Timothy was trusted to go to minister to churches that were dear to Paul. And that shows a character that Timothy had. That shows a credibility as a young man that Timothy had with Paul. And Paul's the one that went through the crucible of affliction with Timothy. And Paul's the one saying, I'm vouching for this guy. You know, this, this guy considers what's most important. This guy has proven his worth, is what it says. And he's one that I can trust that will look after the welfare of others, other followers of Christ, and particularly will look out after the interests of Christ. Timothy was a devoted man. He allowed Paul to circumcise him as a Gentile. And if you don't know what's going on there, Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised. There's a whole history there, but let me just help you out and know that Timothy didn't have to be circumcised. And let's assume that around Timothy's age of salvation, which was presumably around 17, 18, 19 years old, Paul came and Paul preached, and Timothy was pressed by the Word of God, pressed by the gospel, and by God's grace, he gave him faith, he gave him life, and Timothy becomes a Christian, and all these great things happen, and he eventually says, hey, circumcise me. And this is all in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 through 11, I believe. And so Timothy is circumcised. Why? Was it absolutely necessary? No. No, there's a whole teaching on the fact that, no, 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 there's a circumcision of the heart now. You don't have to do that. But Timothy says, you know what? For the sake of the gospel, so that I will be accepted, i.e., the gospel will be accepted. I will do whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. So we see he had a level of devotion that is definitely distinct from me and most likely distinct from us. Even to his death, Fox's Book of Martyrs records, and this is, I wasn't there, but this is what the history books say. <coughs> they say that Timothy was eventually beaten to death while, while witnessing to, uh, to a, a bunch of partygoers during a pagan festival. And he had such love for the gospel, he had such allegiance to Christ, such devotion that he just interrupted all things and went and said, hey, this is, not, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Just like Paul in Acts chapter 14 when he was in the city of Lystra, Paul says, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, this man is healed, and they start celebrating Zeus and Hermes have come down, Paul and Barnabas, Zeus and Hermes, and he says, no, 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 this is not me. So he, he quietens the crowd and says, 
This is not me. This is God who has done these things. So in similar fashion, Timothy interrupts the party and says, listen, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. Here's the gospel. Here's hope. Here's truth. Here's life. And how do they respond? They beat him eventually to death. And that's how the storybooks say Timothy died. And several sources say that, which is why I would bring it up here. But again, I wasn't there. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And if he didn't die a martyr's death, it doesn't mean he was any less devoted to the gospel. So what's, what set Timothy apart was not his eloquence. <coughs> excuse, me. <coughs> excuse me. It was not his eloquence. It was not his stature. It was not his abilities. It wasn't his, his abilities as a pastor because he pastored Ephesus for years. It wasn't his ability to... to, to you know, to, to do any of these things, but his proven worth and his genuine concern for others is what set him apart. And this is good news for me, and it should be good news for you. Because I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes my limitations as a man, my limitations as a human, as, as, as I'm broken, as I'm fallen, those become great excuses and great reasons for me to doubt the power of God in my life. And I say, well, I'm just this. And I sinned this way yesterday. Yesterday I had, to, I had to repent in front of my son. I had to apologize to him because I felt that I've been getting <clears throat> just very irritable with him very easily lately. And it may be because I've come off of those, those, uh, those uh, antidepressant medications. Uh, and and one, of the, one of the side effects or withdrawals could be irritability. And I'm just, I'm like two steps away from just yelling at my son. I'm like, what in the world? And I'm just kind of hard on him. And I pulled him outside yesterday and just had to confess, hey, I'm sorry, you know, forgive daddy. You know, he's like, you didn't do anything wrong. I said, but I did. Shut your mouth. <laughs> you know, I did. I did something wrong, you know, and I tried to explain it to him. I'm, I'm starting to weep, right, as I'm talking to him. He's like, daddy, what's wrong with you? You know, because it was a hard, it was a hard thing, right? And, and because I, I, I recognize my weakness, my fallenness, and sometimes that just becomes excuse for why God's not going to use me. That's one of my struggles. It's like Timothy lacking credibility or Timothy having an ailment. I'm like, well, I have, I have issues too. But I lean or press into the life of Timothy and to the fact that Paul is giving him recognition. I'm saying, okay, I need to be like that. And I need someone to be like that in my life. Our giftings are not what set us apart as ministers of reconciliation in the gospel. Because there are a lot of people with giftings who stand like this and preach much more eloquently and can handle the text much better than I can, but their hearts and their motives are wrong. That's not what sets us apart. What sets us apart is a heart from which those gifts are administered, the heart from which those gifts are carried out. That's what sets us apart. And Paul says this of Timothy. He says, I'm sending him to you soon. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And I thought that was interesting to hear that. What does it mean to look after the interest of Jesus? I get it. I get it. I get looking after, after the interest of, of, of Catherine. I get it. I think, okay, maybe they have needs, you know, or, or as a parent, I understand getting the interest of my children. I know what they want. And I know what they need. And my paradigm of operation is to minister to what they need more so than to what they want. So what does it mean to look out for the interest of Christ? Because that's the language that he uses. He says, he, where others look after their own interests, he says he, or he says he looks after the interests of others. Then he says he looks after the interests of Christ. So it's, what is that? It has to mean something. And this is what I would submit to you, that it means this, to work towards 
or for God's agenda, i.e. slash the gospel, to work towards that in someone else's life. It's like speaking gospel fluency. It's like, what does this person need in their life as a follower of Christ? What do they need to best set them up for success so that they can be made into the image of Jesus? And the things that don't look like Christ can be chiseled away from their life. What can I be in their life? How can I speak to them in their life? How can I admonish them, exhort them, challenge them in their life so that this agenda that God has, so that the gospel is carried out or rightly represented in their life? It's just considering the greatest heart needs of others. And that's what it's saying. That's what Timothy was good at. That's what set him apart. Because he will go there and he will look, not at the outside, but he will look at the inside. He'll say, what is that that you need? He will be like James when James says, what is the reason for the fighting and the quarreling among you? You murder because you do not have. He says, at the end of the day, it's because of the desires of your heart. This is what Timothy was looking at. This is what we're asking our MC leaders to look for. What's the condition of the heart? What are the root issues causing the fruit to be, dis- to, uh, to be displayed. This principle is applied very naturally in our parenting, as I've already mentioned. We look out for the best interest of our children. Just to give you some examples, we set boundaries, right? Right? Shannon, Stephen, new parents, they set boundaries. They're learning as cute as Jackson is. They've got to set boundaries. I don't know if they are already. If they are not, I think I started when mine was two days old, but they start spanking. If they're stepping out of line, it's like, okay, I hate to do this, and it will not get any easier because now that my son is 10 years old and if I have to give him a spanking, he's not very happy. So as a little child like Calvin, if I have to give him a little spanking, he's just sad. But if I give Wesley a spanking, he's angry. He might plot to kill me in my sleep. So I have to wrestle through this, right? But I'm like, I've got to consider your best interests, bro. There's a reason I don't want my kids playing in the street. It's not because I'm killjoy. It's because I don't want you to get run over, because I care for you. I limit my children's time on, with technology. Why? Because, because I don't think it's good for you in the long run. So I have to manage that. I have to control those things, not because I hate my kids or I don't want them to have fun, but I don't want them to get so far removed from reality that they forget what reality is. I had a conversation with my son just the other day, and this is just applying those principles of best interests. I'm sitting with my son, and I'm having this conversation, and he's very, uh, he's very judicial. He, he has a strong sense of fairness, or he wants fairness. He wants justice, and he wants uh, uh, an explanation. He wants a rationale for all things. I don't know if you've had kids like that, but I'll let you borrow mine, you know, just so you can go through that process and get really frustrated. But I'm talking to my son, and he's like, but daddy, but daddy, this and this and this. And I finally said, son, okay, you want an explanation. I said, here it is. And I, and I just... I just use big people words with him. I'm like, son, the more you give yourself to a false reality, the more you will forget the reality that you live in. And what I mean by that, I said, is there is real evil? God is real. Satan is real. He hates you. He hates God. God loves you. God hates Satan. And I do believe that, by the way. And so, you know, because there are those that say, well, God loves everybody. Mm, He hates Satan. So, um, and so there, there's these things that happens. There's real responsibility. If you're in Christ, there's a real expectation on your life. And there will be a real account that you will give one day. And I have found in my own life that the further I remove myself from reality through video games, through TV and those things, the less I live in what is reality. And those things 
aren't so pressing on me. They're not so weighty to me anymore because I find myself drifting in this world that isn't real. Whether it be a Netflix series and I'm thinking, what's next? What's going to happen? Whether it be a movie that's coming out soon, you know, we're really excited for one day the next Marvel movie to come out, you know, the next uh, Avengers movie. So I'm thinking of that and that's fine and that's good, but there's a point where I can become so obsessed that I live constantly in this false reality. And that's the conversation that I'm having with a 10-year-old boy kind of philosophical, and he's like, okay, <laughs> kind of sorry that he asked for my rationale. I gave him another rationale this morning about you, Jamie, which I'll save for after, after, after the service. It was kind of funny. We say hard things to our kids. Sometimes I have to look at Wes and say, son, that was dumb. And dumb's like a bad word to him. I'm like, since when did dumb become a bad word? I'm not calling you a dummy. I'm not slandering you. I'm not tearing you down. But what you did was dumb. I have said stupid before. I'll just admit it because stupid is a word in the English dictionary that rightly, that rightly explains an action. I didn't call him stupid. So those that say stupid's a bad word, that's a lie. Stupid's a word, and sometimes it's appropriate. I never call my kid stupid, but sometimes I've said, that's stupid because it rightly identifies or rightly explains a situation. So we say hard things to our kids. Maybe you've said to your kid, you've disappointed me. That's hard. I'm sure that's hard to say. You disappointed me, but I love you. We carry out discipline. When I was growing up, if I didn't say thank you at the end of the meal, my mom would make me sit at the table until everybody was done, until all the, all the plates were clean and everybody was out of the kitchen. Now you may get up. And I hated it. I hated it because I got things to do, right? You know, I'm 10 years old. I got things to do, folks. You know, Mortal Kombat on Sega Genesis. I've got to get to it. Right? So, so my, my mom would make me do that. And over time, I learned a valuable lesson to be thankful, to be thankful for my food. I said it. And so, guess what started to happen? I would go to places like restaurants. I would go to places like friends' house and have meals. Thank you for, thank you for dinner. It might have been nasty, but thank you for dinner. My mom's teaching me to express gratitude because she has my best interest. She doesn't want me to be this kid walking around who's a jerk to everybody who never expresses gratitude to anyone for anything. So there's discipline. One time I lied to my boss when I was 15 years old. I worked for a Christmas tree farm. His name was Wally Swedenberg. And I lied one day about having a dentist appointment because quite frankly, I didn't want to work out in the hot sun that day. He had a sawmill. I didn't work with Christmas trees. I worked in a sawmill. I'm like, this is false advertisement. I was on the hot sun with this giant blade that could just cut me in half, and I was a little bit scared. And he put me out there as a 15-year-old every day, weighing about a buck ten. Here I am just dying. So one day I said, I'm done. So I called him up and said, ah. No, I, the, the day before I said, Mr. Wiley, I said, I can't come into work. I got, a, I got a dentist appointment. The sun had really just messed my brain up. He calls me the next day, calls my mom, says, you know, because I was going to do half a day. And he calls my mom and says, I just, you know, I know that your son has a dentist appointment tomorrow. And uh, he's, he's, he's done so good at showing up to work and really working hard. And I know it's tough. Man, never praised me. Never praised me. This day, he calls to praise me to my mother. She says, tell him, he says, tell her, tell him to take the whole day off. I'm like, so my mom, not saying anything to him. Okay, thanks, Wally. I get home and mom says, hey, guess what? I said, what? <laughs> She says, uh, well, he's giving you the day off tomorrow. I said, awesome. She says, you know, he just, you know, he, he, and she brought up the dentist appointment and then my whole countenance just dropped. I'm like, oh gosh. So my mom 
made me go to Wally, not call him, was no texting back then. She said, just, you got to go over there and you got you to gotta admit what you did. And I was scared of him. He was not someone to test at all. He was just a rough fella. Said he was a Christian, but I was scared to death of him. So I go to Wally and I say, Wally, or Mr. 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 Wally. And I told him, and I was expecting to be fired. I was expecting to, to just get it handed to me. I mean, just whatever form of beating I needed. And he thanked me for my honesty, ironically. He says, I know that was hard for you to do, and that says a lot about you. I'm like, well, it says more about my mom, but thanks. <laughs> and uh, he said, you can take the rest of the day off. Be here tomorrow. He showed me grace, which that's a whole other sermon illustration. So I go home, and my mom says, I said, well, great, I'm off the hook. I got the day. No, sir. No, sir. She had plans for me that day. So I worked in the hot sun all day long, shoveling rocks and all kinds of stuff. I, my, my mom never ceases to amaze me at how many things she can find to do at a house that are absolutely miserable. But we carry out discipline. Why? Because we have our best interest in mind for our children. Many parents sacrifice friendships with children to become what's best for them. And I, I throw that in there because this is a big one. I've known a lot of moms, especially, and dads, to shirk their responsibility as the authoritative figure in that child's life because they didn't want to be thought of in any way less than a good best friend. And I've seen a lot of mothers in particular fall into that. Is I have a responsibility, and i got to say hard things, but I don't want to push my daughter or push my son away. And sometimes, sometimes we sacrifice our true calling as parents on the altar of friendship with our children. And that's unhealthy because our children have friends. They don't need you to be their friend. They need you to be their parent. Now, that's a talk on parenting, but the issue is the same. We keep our, we keep our children's best interests in mind. Not to say you can't be friends with your kids, but not at the expense of not becoming their authority or ceasing to be their authority. So here's my questions. What if Christians followed the same code that parents have with their children? This is how we relate it back. What if we had the same code of conduct? What if looking at each other, we said, I need to keep your best interest in mind. I need to consider your welfare above all things. Is this not what Paul just said in Philippians 2? He says, look not to your interest alone, or look not only to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. He's given us this description, this mandate, and then he's showing us Timothy as the example of someone who does just that. He's saying, Timothy's that guy. Timothy's the one that considers others above himself. But not just that, he takes it a step further and says, Timothy looks after the interests of others as it relates to their identity in the gospel. And that's where the rubber starts to meet the road. And that's what the church needs to look like. Our responsibility to one another is in the context of the gospel. It's important to see each other through the lenses of the gospel and say, what do you most need? Because that's the heart of it, is to say, what does Charlie need as it relates to the gospel? What does, what do I, how do I need to minister to Charlie as it relates to the interests of Christ? What is Christ's agenda? To conform Charlie to the image of Jesus, or God is conforming Charlie to the image of Jesus. So I'm thinking in that triangular fashion, okay, I'm filtering all these things through God and His expectations and His standards to meet the needs of Charlie at the root level, at the heart level. And this is what Timothy does. 
This is what he does. This is, this is what happens in 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, chapters 8 through 11, over and over again. You have where Paul is saying, this should be your conduct with one another. This is what body life should look like. It should not look like, oh, let's keep to our own business and stay out of one another's affairs. That's unloving. You understand that that is an unloving thing to do unless you're a gossip and you just want to get in the mix you know, for the sake of having some garbage on someone else, and that's a hard issue. But over and over again in the, in the New Testament, we see how the body of Christ is to be lived out, how to conduct themselves, and how we should look to the interest of one another as it relates to the gospel, as it relates to the interests of Jesus. So what would the local church look like if, we f- if it were filled with a bunch of Timothys? Filled with a bunch of Timothys, what would it look like? If it were filled with men and women who were looking out for Christ's interests as they relate to others in the faith, what would it look like? I mean, you think about it for just a minute. I, just, I want it to kind of settle on you for just a second because it settled on me last night, and I'm thinking, as far as my part, I don't, I don't function as a Timothy to others where I should. And I need to do that. I need to be that in people's life. And I need someone to be a Timothy in my life, someone that has my deepest interests in mind, someone that's willing to say, Alan, I've noticed this. I'm concerned about this. You know, I just want to give you the opportunity to kind of explain because I'm worried and maybe my worries are out of left field. But if I don't say something, I feel that I'm not loving you rightly. That's what it looks like to be a Timothy to someone else. And the Bible is, is, is just filled with what our conduct should look like between one another. James 5.16, therefore, confess your sins. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. How much confession is there going on to one another? This is what it looks like to be a Timothy in the church. To either go to someone and say, hey, what's going on? What's going on? I'm seeing some fruits here, but there's some roots behind that that are producing these bad fruits. What's going on? Let's talk. And we need to confess and say, this is my problem. I'm in darkness. I'm struggling with this. I'm having these issues. I'm addicted to this. I, 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 have, I have this kind of mouth when I'm here and this kind of mouth when I'm away. I treat my wife this way. I treat my husband this way. Whatever it is, everyone has something that needs to be confessed. And the Bible puts it there and says it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So what is Timothy doing? How would what would being a Timothy look like? Keeping Christ's interests in mind, and that is that sin in the camp is mortified, sin in the camp is eradicated, is killed, is extinguished. And how do you do that? You come and you say, I'm identifying where sin is. I'm putting my finger on it. Let's deal with this. It looks like speaking the truth in love, which is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And these are hard things, right? These are difficult issues. But being a Timothy is not easy. It's never meant to be easy. You understand what the church is. God has redeemed people, and He's put them in close proximity together, and He says, share life together. He's made marriages and said, hey, 
Here's this, you know, there's this small arena, the small context that you are going to be intimately connected with one another, and you're both broken. You're both broken. You know, don't ever believe that two Christians should never fight, or maybe you're not saved, or, oh, I'm a married, my wife's a believer, I'm a believer, we, we, we fight, so, you know, we've got, you know, like you act like it's not supposed to be. Christian marriages should never fight, because we have Jesus. You have Jesus, but you're broken. You're broken. That's what it is. Titus 2 says, but as for you, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. The Bible gives us ways that we're supposed to interact. It shows us what our conduct should be as the body of Christ. And a part of that conduct is being someone that considers the welfare of others more so than themselves, or not only themselves, but others, but also considers the interests of Christ's interests of Christ as it relates to that person and their identity in the gospel. So Paul says that Timothy is like no one else that he is genuinely concerned for the welfare of others, for they all seek their own interest and not the interest of Christ. And he says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. I said that Timothy and Paul have been through the crucible of affliction together. Timothy's worth is proven. And it wasn't by his eloquence of speech. It wasn't his ability to preach. It was what he did with the affliction. It was what he did with the hardships that fell on top of him. It's how he came out on the other side. There's where we see his proven worth. So Timothy was no slouch. Was he sickly, had stomach issues? Sure. Did he strive to get credibility with people and maybe didn't find it all the time because he was young? Were there frustrations? Sure, absolutely. But Timothy was no slouch. Paul had seen Timothy endure years of ministry hardship only to come out looking more like Christ when he came out on the other side. And so Paul's response is, he has proven his worth. And so here's your application. A few admonishments or exhortations that I want to make to you. And the first is this, your, your reliability and your worth as a follower of Jesus should never, should never be in question by those who are around you. It should not be. If you are someone of sincere faith, if you are someone who is spoken of as Timothy is spoken of here, when Paul says that there is no one like him, he is genuinely concerned. And as he says later in the second, book, second letter of Timothy where he says, but he has sincere faith. If that is you, then there should be no cause for question around you. The conduct of your life should bespeak the relationship and the identity that you have with Jesus. And that's a no-brainer. That's just obvious. That's, that's Christianity 101 here. Those aren't the deeper, Richard, well, they are Richard, but that's not the deeper doctrines of the faith. It's if you're changed, if you are possessed by the Spirit of God, if you are owned and you are being made in the image of Christ, it should be evident. When Jonathan McWhite was losing all that weight, it became evident that he was doing something. Because one day he showed up around 230 pounds, the next day he showed up at 130 pounds. There was a difference. 
He looked different. Something was going on. You couldn't ignore it. If I came into you next Sunday and said, the craziest thing happened to me yesterday, I stood out in the road and an 18-wheeler ran slap over me, and I look as good as I do now, you would say, you're lying, or something's crazy happening here. If I, in fact, did get hit by a truck, you would know that something substantial had happened to my body, mainly because you would probably see it in the casket or not. You know that it would be a real situation if that actually happened. Significant events cause significant change. And so your reliability and worth as a follower of Jesus should never be in question by the world around you. Just like with Timothy, Paul was saying, look, you don't want him to question you. You rely on your purity of speech. You rely on these things. You rely on your steadfastness and living with faith. It's what we do with the brokenness of this world that proves our worth to others. It's how we respond to the hardships. Number two is your life should be marked by a faith that is indisputable, that is genuine, that is sincere. Your life should be marked by that kind of faith. When it comes to your faith, do people get the impression that you're sincere, that you, that you are sincere about what you say you believe? And I know I've used Evan for a lot of examples, but I wrote this last night. This was the only one I planned to use. I do believe that Evan is a Georgia Bulldog fan. I believe that. I believe Stephen is a, is a Gator fan. I've known Evan longer, and I've listened to the ridiculousness for a longer period of time. So, so I know that Evan's a, a, a sincere Bulldog fan. He doesn't just say it, you know, and he says it a lot, you know, but he goes to games, you know. He knows a lot, of, a lot of statistics. He knows a lot of facts that, you know, really don't matter at all. Sorry, they don't, but he knows these things, right? He's a storehouse of useless knowledge when it comes to Georgia Bulldog, and that's okay. It shows that he's really sincere about this. I have no doubt in Catherine's sincerity of Clemson. I have no doubt of Stephen's sincerity with the, with the Florida Gators, because I see it as evidenced in their life, in their conversations, you know, in, 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 in their actions. And that's an easy example to show kind of what it, how it would be applied in the spiritual sense. And that is that our life should be marked by faith that is, that is genuine. If I'm saying something, something should back that up. Just like if I'm telling my wife I love her, but I never, I never do anything for my wife. I never sacrifice. I never, I never do anything to express my love. Is she going to believe that I love her? No, she's not going to believe that. I can say it all day long. There's so many women who are trapped in abusive relationships because after the beating, the husband comes along and says, but honey, I love you. And when the wife or when the woman is, is challenged, why don't, you, why don't you get to a safe place? Oh, he loves me. And he says he loves me. He means well. He says it. He says it. He doesn't show it. So biblically speaking, it's not love because love is doing. Love is acting. So your, love, your, your life should be marked by a faith that is indisputable. No one should question these things. Thirdly, you need to be a Timothy in someone else's life, and someone needs to be a Timothy in yours. And this is for us. This is for the body of Christ. We need to be Timothys for one another. And we need others to be Timothys for us. My son and wife went bowling not too long ago. It might have been my son's first bowling experience. And I don't know whether he used them or not, but people that I've bowled with, and I'm not a good bowler at all, but the people that I've bowled with, some who are not so great, we have to cut on those bumpers. You know, you got the, the gutter bumpers. What does the gutter bumper do? It just allows the ball to kind of... I've seen people still miss regularly with the gutter bumpers. You know, that's really terrible, scoring like 50 less, you know, 50 or less in the, in, the, in the game of bowling. 
But the gutter bumpers help to keep you in the lane, right? They help to keep you on a trajectory. You're wobbly and going all over the place, but they keep you in the lane. So when we serve as Timothys for others and others serve as Timothy for us, you're kind of like spiritual gutter bumpers. I see someone stepping away or I see someone kind of in a wrong line of thought or, or their actions don't line up with a life that is lived in a manner worthy of the gospel according to Scripture that I have to serve as that Timothy, I have to serve as a gutter bumper to say, hey, you're, you're headed for the gutter, bro. Hey, sister, you're headed for the gutter, so, so let me help keep you in the lane. It might be bumpy. You might be going all over the place. You might not have you know, a straight aim to save your life, but at least we're headed the right direction. And you need some coaching and some mentoring because you're going to be bumping all over the sides. I've been waiting to use that illustration. It finally fit. Word pictures. Word pictures. Austin is my hero. And that's what it is to serve as a Timothy. It's walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. The last point of admonishment and application is that your limitations, your limitations should never, ever hinder your expectations. And that's not me just writing it because it sounded kind of fancy and that I want you to tweet that. I don't mean it that way. But what I mean by your limitations should never hinder your expectations. I mean your expectations as to what God will do in your life as to what God's agenda is for your life, as to what God's promises are for your life. Timothy, in many ways, was a least likely candidate, kind of sickly, maybe discouraged because struggling to find some credibility. But after the crucible of hardship, after the crucible of fire, he came out refined, sharpened, whole, and ready for the next battle, ready to be an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. And so that's the idea, is you're young, you're old, you're not eloquent, you don't know much Scripture. You know, we can just take and make a list of all the things that would keep us from productivity as a follower of Christ, that would keep us from walking in a manner worthy, but I don't think we'll find one that's a viable excuse for negligence. Not even one, right? Because what happens when we do that is we let our limitations, the fact that I'm broken, the fact that I'm human, the fact that, the fact that maybe I'm getting frustrated with my son, the fact that I'm, my fuse is getting shorter and shorter with him, oh, I'm just not worthy of being a parent. You know, if I fall into that, then it's falling into a bad theology. It's falling into a bad Christology because it's refusing to acknowledge what Christ has done and how He's transformed you and how He's given you His righteousness and how through all of those things, God will then use you because of who He has made you in Jesus. So don't let your limitations ever hinder your expectations, specifically to the expectations of what God will do in your life. So in closing, this is kind of what I happened upon as I was just going through that section of Timothy. And I thought to myself, I think these are practical helps looking at the character of Timothy, considering why he was set apart, why he was specific, what made him unique. And so to challenge us all with the same kind of thing. So I hope this week this will kind of land on you. You can kind of marinate on this. Go back and revisit it. Go back and look at it. And just become more acquainted with it. Because you don't have, you're not, I know you're not teaching every week, so, so you're not saturating yourself in that one text like maybe we are on a week-to-week basis. But take a chance to do that. Take the chance to do that this week and think, okay, God, what do I view as my limitations? And how am I limiting you in looking at my limitations? You know, God, where do I need to be a Timothy? And where, does, where do I need someone to be a Timothy for me? You know, how can I have that kind of character? Ask God, plead with God to sanctify you to that place. So let's pray together and we'll be dismissed.